Today's scripture is Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw a baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrews' babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, should I, go, should, excuse me, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. Then the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Our second worship in word this morning, uh, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 5, and 2 Timothy 3, chapter 3, 14 through 17. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as, a, as I constantly remember you in my prayers, night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in, that it is in you as well. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which you are able to give you, the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that man, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Amen. I figure more or less I've preached about a thousand sermons in my career. And I don't mind admitting to you that there are times when it's difficult to think of new things to talk about, especially when it comes round to cyclical things like Mother's Day. So today's uh, texts and title I give credit to Eric Thornburg for. We're getting a lot of uh, echo up here. You have a way, Frank, of echo? Okay. So thank you, Eric, for... Uh, being a resource, I really do appreciate it. The nature of nurture, for those of you with a psychology a class or two under your belt, uh, 
clever title, clever play on the old debate, nurture or nature. I think I've spoken to this a time or two and can testify to the power of both. Clearly, in my particular situation, I have a set of genetics to look at and I have a set of parents who've nurtured whose genetics I don't share. And I can tell you that there's great power in both. That's why this debate has never been settled. But the nature of nurture is something else, especially when we look at it from a biblical perspective. If we start with our story of Moses, it's an interesting story. Several things that I learned in uh, looking at this week's passages that I didn't know before. One, when I was growing up, Moses' parents were who? Amram and Jochebed. Now, the chances are very good that Amram and Jochebed were actually ancestors of the one who came to be known as Moses. One of the traditions that exists in ancient times is that the seed of Abraham, for example, continues to be known as Abraham's seed for generations. So that even when we read the New Testament and we see a dialogue, for example, between Christ and the Pharisees, their declaration is, Abraham is our who? Our father. Is Abraham, in fact, their father? Well, that depends on your perspective. He's certainly not their generational father, not the one uh, who, with their mother, gave them life. But he is the forefather. He is the ancestor that they all go back and identify to or with. What I learned is that Amram and Jochebed, though coming to us as traditionally the names of the parents of the one who would become Moses, may actually have been several generations back, ancestors of Moses. So I'm going to refer to Moses's mother as opposed to Jochebed this morning. As we read the story there that we we just read 10 verses of in chapter 2 of Exodus, we find an interesting thing happening. There arises a pharaoh who knows Joseph not. So you recall how the Hebrew people came to be in Egypt's land. The 12, what would become the 12 tribes, Jacob and his sons, experienced famine in the land. A famine so severe that they were forced to travel great distances to try to find food and to buy food for their family, to keep from starving to death you know that the preceding story, we find one of the favored sons of Jacob, Joseph, having been sold to Amalekite traders for a certain number of pieces of silver. Do you recall that? Sold as a slave, traded to the Egyptians, and rose up through the ranks of Potiphar's house only to be jailed, predicted the outcome of two of the king's servants' imprisonment, one hanging and the other restoration, and years later was remembered by the butler who served and brought to the king when the king had very troubling dreams, fat cows being devoured by skinny cows, and so forth. Joseph, because of his interpretation of dreams, 
and his clear wisdom, and we all know something that's not explicitly listed or labeled, but the blessing and hand of God, became second in the land of Pharaoh in charge of gathering grain and gathering food during the years of plenty. So for seven years they gathered and built storehouses and multiplied food in the land. And when the years, the lean years came, they had food aplenty. And it was in this time that Jacob and his other 11 sons would have journeyed to Egypt. Well, you know the story. They appear before Joseph, and Joseph wants to know if they've changed, if they have hatred in their hearts toward his other full brother, Benjamin. wants to know if there's anything different about these men, and he tests them and finds them to be true. And the king welcomes them. The pharaoh at the time gives them permission to settle temporarily in the richest part of the land. If you look at Egypt, it's got vast portions of desert land. But anywhere the Nile flows, there's lush greenery. And in the Nile Delta, like any other delta, we have deltas here in California. Anybody been to the Stockton Delta? up in central California, it just spreads out tentacles over vast amounts of desert land and creates enormously rich farmscape. And the Nile Delta was no different. It was an enormously rich land in wildlife, of course, but also in farming potential, with these swamps that would produce rice and all manners of grains and things. They settled in the richest part of the land, and multiplied very rapidly and continued to grow in wealth and numbers. Well, now we come to a political situation that's not entirely dissimilar from today. We want to build a fence along Arizona, don't we? Well, some of us do. We're concerned because all the jobs in this country are being taken over by various groups, so we think. Maybe they are but we're concerned with the changing demographics and the population shift, and the Egyptians were too. They said, what are we going to do about this people? They live in the best part of the land. They're growing by leaps and bounds. They have wealth. Pretty soon there'll be more of them than us. And they enslaved them. And a pharaoh came along who knew Joseph not, and he gave them hard labor and oppressed them severely. And it was under these unfavorable times that the boy who was later to be named Moses would be born. In fact, when Moses was born, a decree existed that all male babies should be tossed into the Nile. That is to say, all male Hebrew babies should be tossed into the Nile. If you know much about the Nile, there are some critters that live there. You want to name those for me? Crocodiles, yes. What else? Probably some snakes and other things. Things that would not be particularly friendly to a baby. And of course, drowning is an almost immediate threat. A terrible thing had been done and ordered. A terrible thing. The initial decree had been that midwives, when they see a male baby being born, 
kill it. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, the cord was wrapped around the neck. Something like that. The midwives rebelled. They were Hebrew. They served Hebrew women, and their standard line to the Pharaoh was this. Oh, king, Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They're stronger and hardier because of the hard labor you put them to. And when they go to deliver, they deliver quickly, before we can even get there. What was Pharaoh to do but to order all of them to be destroyed? The woman who bore the child that would be Moses wasn't going to have any of it. In fact, as far as we know, the Hebrew women didn't cooperate at all. She hid him the best she could, but a crying baby is a difficult thing to conceal. And at three months, she could conceal him no longer. Very cleverly, she observed and devised a plan. You see, the Nile, among other things, was a sacred river, a place of worship and a place of ceremonial bathing, and, of course, a place where millions of peasant people did their laundry and dishes and all that sort of stuff, too. But every morning, the princess of the land and her entourage would come down to the water's edge. And this clever woman devised a plan to make a basket, watertight, and put this baby in the basket in view of where the princess and her entourage would go. You notice the princess doesn't go after the basket herself. A caiman or a, a crocodile is not something to be messed with, and a servant would be expendable in this case. So she sent a servant girl into the water to fetch the basket. Can you imagine getting that assignment? That's like going to Florida Swampland and swimming. So she goes out to the basket and pulls it in, and thankfully she's not attacked, and the baby is crying in the basket. And I don't know how they know, but they know it's a Hebrew baby. Maybe because of circumcision. Maybe something else. But they take pity on this poor baby, and the princess decides to adopt it. Kind of the stray dog thing. Some people just can't help themselves. Only it's a baby. She takes it in. The motherly urge will not be denied. But she hasn't born this child, and she's not producing milk, and she needs a way to feed this baby. And cleverly, an older sister happens to be available to say, Ma'am, would you like me to find somebody to care for this child for a while? And so Moses' birth mother gets to raise him these first years. And the nature of nurture is that she instills in him, despite nearly 400 years of slavery, the collective memory of a God who made promises and covenants. A God who spoke to their forefathers. A God who kept his word. A God of great generosity and provision. A God of power and grace and strength a God worthy of worship, a God like none other, a God unlike any of the Egyptian gods. This 
somehow she instilled in a child. The scripture says simply, when he was ready, he went to live in the princess's house and became named Moses because he was pulled out of the water. Many Egyptian names have the word Moses or part of the word Moses as part of the name. Moses would be raised in the finest empire, in the finest court in the world at the time, with the best of education. The princess would see to it that even though he was different, he would be treated no differently. He would be schooled in warfare. He would be schooled in astronomy and astrology. He would be schooled in every art, mathematics, architecture. He would be schooled in everything known to the Egyptians. And he was. She nurtured him to a kind of greatness that God would use in ways nobody could have imagined. We know that in his conflicted identity, Moses slew an overlord while observing him beat a Hebrew slave found himself in trouble with the law and banished from the land, and he went to a distant place where he herded sheep, where he was mentored by another godly man, Jethro, a priest, where he found a wife, and let's not underestimate the power of wives. She too became a mother, but she taught Moses a thing or two. Men, have you learned a thing or two? I saw some of you take a rose and put it back. No, that's not her favorite color. You've learned a thing or two. You know. You know. You want to hit the ball out of the park, you'd better send the right flower. For my mother, it was pennies. My wife loves tulips. You can't lose. Moses learned again. And one day God came to him in the strangest of places and said, I want you to lead my people to freedom. And he didn't feel worthy. This man who had learned of the only true God, this man whose identity as a Hebrew conflicted with the education and identity he had as an Egyptian, this man who was trained in the finest schools in the land, and this man who was trained by sheep and a priest in the desert, a father-in-law, and a wife. And when all of that had passed, God was ready for him. And he was ready for service. And one of the greatest leaders, one of the greatest prophets, one of the greatest heroes of Scripture, one of the greatest men of all time, following the lead of God, set God's people free. And when Moses' sister tried to mess with his wife, the mother of his children, God gave her leprosy. And when she repented, God healed her of leprosy. It's a powerful story, isn't it? It's a powerful story. Fast forward to Jesus. We didn't read passages in Luke 2 today, but if you fast forward... 
you see another young woman, humble, but willing to be the handmaid of the Lord. A mother who, along with Joseph, who is spoken to by an angel and comes to a place of acceptance and willingness, takes this young family and themselves flee to Egypt because the leader of the land has ordered the execution of the babies. In their time in Egypt, I don't know what all happened or what was learned. But the one who would be the Christ came out of Egypt's land too, after Herod died. Mary would teach him. Joseph would teach him. And they would be surprised at the wisdom he possessed that surpassed his age. That he should be aware of who his father was at such a tender age and began to exhibit those signs that gave a portal into who he would become. It was the nurture of a mother who would not leave him as he died. And whom, as we discussed previously, he provided for. Mother, your son, John. John, your mother. Jesus would give Mary a hard time on certain occasions. Cana, you recall, she comes to him all flustered. Jesus, Jesus, you've got to do something. The wine has run out, and you hear him say, well, what has that got to do with me? Not a rebellious response, but... An honest one. Maybe he wasn't sure his time was. But when she pleaded with him, he turned water to wine. Somehow she knew he could fix the problem. And I'm guessing there isn't another person at that banquet, even if the whole village were there, who could have persuaded him to do so. Calvin Miller says this, If a woman has loved her son, he'll carry anything for her, a glass of water or the world. Fast forward to our texts in Timothy. We see the imprint of mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, on this young man. For he knows the scriptures from his youth. Ladies, I'm going to be blunt. We have, and I'm speaking to mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers alike, aunts, we have a tremendous challenge in the age of advanced television, in the age of endless gaming, in the age of connectivity with cell phones and texting and kids who are preoccupied. The challenge is to nurture our children to know the scriptures and the word of God. Because biblically speaking, nurture is defined as instilling in our child an identity. That identity takes the shape of Christian 
of one who knows God, one who knows the word of God. And as a people, we're struggling. Our children, many of them, don't know basic stories in Scripture. We're so busy trying to make sure our child gets a full experience with sports and with after-school academic programs and drama clubs and extra things. Our kids' time is taken up television and texting and gaming and the diversion of friends. We haven't always made the space and taken the time to instill, to nurture our children into the knowledge of God and the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is no more important a task. I stand with you, mothers and fathers. I am one. I stand with our congregation in wanting to make sure that our children are nurtured in the ways of God. That they understand who they are. They're not just a child of Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. They're a child of the Heavenly Father. They're not just precious to the family that surrounds them and loves them, but they're precious to God, whose whole world is his family, who gave his son that we might all live and be redeemed. The nature of nurture is a mother's and father's imprint modeling the godliness that we would profess. And so today, I bring you both a word of thankfulness and appreciation and a word of challenge that our children grow up as Moses, as Jesus, as Timothy, knowing the scriptures from when they are little and being trained in the ways of God. This, my family, is the nature of nurture. And so, God, we ask that you empower us and grace us that we might, mothers and fathers alike, teach our children of you. And we praise you and thank you for motherhood, for nurture, and for the gifts that come in that grace. Amen.